I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty, or give me death. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. And there's more good news. As of this episode's debut in July of 2022, there is yet another classic Jenny L. Cody story now available in audiobook as well. It's called The Dreamer, The Schemer, and The Robe. It's the Old Testament story of Joseph, son of Jacob, who was sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers, but by his faith in God and with an amazing amount of help from the Epic Order animals, eventually rose to great power in Egypt. It's an amazing story in Genesis, but with the artful storytelling of our own Jenny L. Cody, our Jenny Sis, <laughs> I then have the privilege of reading it for you, so you can just sit back, listen, and enjoy. Again, it's The Dreamer, The Schemer, and The Robe, our latest audiobook creation, and it's now available on audible.com. Well, gang, we are down to our final two chapters of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, and what a final two chapters they are. American history in the making, the most famous stirring words of Patrick Henry, crafted and retold by our master storyteller Jenny L. Cody, and then later in Jenny's Corner, she will give us the incredible circumstances in which she wrote about Patrick and our special eagle friend, Cato. <laughs> this is exciting. <laughs> Aye, lad, you seem a wee bit more pumped up than usual. I guess I am, Max. Perhaps because you will get a vacation soon? No, not at all, Liz. Bite your tongue. Uh, why in the world would I do that? A uh, figure of speech, my pet. Uh, but you knew that. Ah, uh, yeah, thanks, Nigel. Yes, as always, here are your hosts for today's podcast, Max, Liz, and Nigel. But did I hear we may also have some in-studio guests today, monsieur? And, uh, how do you know that? Uh-oh. Uh, uh, Oopsie-daisy. You were in my office again, weren't you, Liz? Well, you left the door wide open, lad. Indeed, and, well, <laughs> we're all acutely aware of a cat's curious nature. Uh, not to mention our incredible leaping ability. So you took the liberty of jumping on my desk and reading my mail. Indeed, announcer chap. You gave her liberty. I wouldn't finish that if I were you, Nigel. <laughs> I say, uh, point made, old boy. Uh, well, then, uh, I shall be as uh, uh, quiet as a mouse. Uh, besides, to be precise, it was not your mail, it was your email. You took the liberty of reading my email? How? On the screen? Hello? But I had it shut down. Oh, monsieur, you are so cute when you cannot connect the dots. Hi, lad. Uh, she knows your password, then. She what? Indeed, as do we all, uh, thus giving us the freedom to take those liberties and... And buy all kinds of stuff with your credit card. Oh, what kind of stuff? I say, at the moment, that is really neither here nor there, old boy. Uh, we don't have the uh, uh, liberty to explore that at the moment, for we have a riveting chapter to get to, what? Yeah, lucky for you. 
Okay, so you already know we have a guest arriving later, but I'll bet you don't know why. Hey, you got us there, laddie. You didn't say much about who we're coming then. Well, we could go back through his email history and... No, you can't. You don't have the freedom to do that. Oh, the unrestrained tyranny. Oh, the overreach of the iron fist of a totalitarian system. Oh, the corrupted use of power to rule... Oh, knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> we were just joshing you, lad. We're not going to spoil your surprise. We, oui, for it is time for Mont Henry to sound the cry of liberty. I say, old boy, uh, could I please have the liberty to uh, do the intro? Well, since you asked nicely, okay, give me the chapter number and give me the title. Uh, right. Uh, <clears throat> I say, give me chapter 67, Liberty or Death. Liz sat behind a tombstone in the graveyard near the main door to Henrico Parish, which was their designated meeting spot. They had decided that once they retrieved the letter opener, she would be the one to sneak inside the church, as Max was too big and would clearly be seen. Her heart pounded as she saw the stream of delegates filing into the church. She looked through a group of stockinged legs until finally she saw the unmistakable square head of a Scottish terrier trotting along behind them. She strained to see his full face when suddenly relief flooded into her spirit. In his mouth, Max carried the ivory letter opener. Max, you have it! Liz cried as he ran up to her, dropping it on the ground. Hi, Cato grabbed it from the evil kitty, cleaned it off in the James River, and dropped it to me, Max explained. He didn't have time to explain, but said to meet him by the falls later. The eagle lad did it, lass. The letter opener's here and clean as a whistle. Liz's face beamed as she placed her dainty paw on the letter opener. Well done, Sheer Cato. But how will I enter the church? she asked. Before I can slip the letter opener into the pocket of my Henry's cloak, I first must get inside. Leave that to me, came the voice of Clarie behind them. She was dressed as a man in the silk breeches and coat of a delegate, with buckled shoes and tricorn hat. Max, you get to the opposite side of the church. I've positioned a crate under a window where you'll be able to listen and observe everything. Liz, you take the letter opener and be ready for my signal. Go. She walked off to open the door just as Patrick Henry and a group of men approached the entrance to the church. Max kissed Liz on the cheek. Okay, yet Henry's safe inside with Mosey in his pocket. Now he just needs that letter opener, and all will be set. You can do it, lassie. Remember what Gilliman always says. Liz nodded and smiled. Hui, know that you are loved and you are able. Aye, Max agreed with a wink. I'll see you and Mousie after the meeting. With that, the Scotty trotted away, leaving Liz there alone behind the tombstone. She took a deep breath and exhaled slowly. Mon Dieu! Make me swift and unseen, s'il vous plaît. The heat in the room was rising, not just from the 120 men packed into Henrico Parish Church, but from the heat of argument that was building in the room as well. 
After opening the fourth day of the convention with a prayer, asking God to protect the king and hearing a series of reports, Patrick Henry asked to be recognized by President Randolph. As he read his resolutions, calling for the colony of Virginia to immediately be put into a state of defense, cries of treason echoed off the walls of the church, and an animated debate ensued. Men were gathered around the outside of the church, straining to hear the arguments coming from inside. It was during that heated debate Clarie made her way to the front of the church and whispered in President Randolph's ear, requesting that she be permitted to open the windows and doors to allow fresh air into the church. Thinking that this man was a delegate from one of the counties in Virginia, or perhaps a parishioner of Henrico, on site to help with anything the convention needed, he nodded in agreement with Clarie's request. Clarie proceeded to open the window and winked at Max, who smiled back at her with a wide grin. Then she opened the far door on the opposite side of the church from the window and motioned for Liz with a finger to her tricorn hat. Fresh air poured into the church, a welcome relief from the stuffy hot air inside. Edmund Pendleton raised his hand to be recognized by President Randolph. Just in time, lass, Max muttered under his breath. Here comes more hot air. The gentleman from Caroline County, Peyton Randolph bellowed, pounding his stick and pointing to call attention to the speaker. Mr. Edmund Pendleton. Sir, Mr. Pendleton started, nodding in respect to Mr. Randolph. Turning to Patrick Henry, he furrowed his brow and exclaimed, We must arm, you say, but gentlemen must remember that blows are apt to follow the arming, and blood will follow blows, and, sir, when this occurs, the dogs of war will be loosed, friends will be converted into enemies, and this flourishing country will be swept with a tornado of death and destruction. What were I just saying about hot air? Max grumbled. Dogs of war. Hmm. Patrick Henry raised his hand to be recognized. The gentleman from Hanover County, Mr. Patrick Henry. Peyton Randolph bellowed, nodding that the floor was now his. Patrick rose from his seat on the third pew near the window where Edward Carrington looked on. He hadn't noticed Max in the window as he walked by. Carrington was amused by the little dog jumping up next to him, but the young patriot was so caught up in the anticipation of hearing Patrick Henry speak that he just stood there, mesmerized, unconcerned that a dog was interested as well. Max wagged his tail, eager for what was about to unfold. Nigel was sweating inside Patrick's cloak pocket. Patrick had gotten so chilled on his walk to the church that he had kept the cloak on until he warmed himself. Do please cooperate and remove your cloak, old boy, Nigel thought, praying that Patrick would do his bidding. Liz peeked in the door through the legs of bystanders in the doorway, her heart beating wildly as she also prayed for Patrick to remove his cloak. Patrick walked to the front of the church, bowed with his foot forward and his arms outstretched respectfully. He turned around and his red cloak swirled behind him. He cleared his throat and started speaking in a low, halting voice of humility as he slowly walked along the front of the church, lifting a hand to acknowledge his worthy opponents scattered in the pews around the church. 
No man thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism, as well as abilities, of the very worthy gentlemen who have just addressed the house. But different men often see the same subject in different lights, and therefore I hope it will not be thought disrespectful to those gentlemen if, entertaining as I do opinions of a character very opposite to theirs, I shall speak forth my sentiments freely and without reserve. George Washington stood by the open door, having got up for a moment to stretch his legs and whisper a word to one of Henry's late arriving supporters. Patrick made his way to the front pew box and shared a nod and knowing look with Washington. He quietly removed his red cloak and draped it over the pew box. Finally, Liz, Nigel, and Max all thought from their various vantage points. Liz quickly slipped into the church unnoticed as all eyes were on Patrick, who started walking in the opposite direction across the front of the church. She glided under the cloak just as Nigel slid out of the pocket onto the floor. They were hidden by the folds of the red cloak. Bravo! You have it! Nigel whispered. Liz smiled with the letter opener in her mouth and then proceeded to slip it into Patrick's pocket in the middle of the rolled-up petition he had tucked away there. She exhaled in relief. Hui, it is done. Now we wait. They peeked out and saw George Washington standing right next to them for a moment before he took his seat a couple of rows behind them. This is no time for ceremony, Patrick said. The question before the house is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, I consider it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. And in proportion to the magnitude of the subject ought to be the freedom of the debate. It is only in this way that we can hope to arrive at truth and fulfill the great responsibility which we hold to God and our country. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time, through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason toward my country, and of an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. Patrick turned and addressed Peyton Randolph, who remained seated in his chair at the front of the church. Mr. President, it is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who, having eyes, see not, and having ears, hear not? the things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation? For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. Veritas, Liz whispered. Nigel nodded. Truth. Patrick then held out an imaginary lantern over his feet as he walked back across the front of the church toward the opened door. I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. He paused and pointed one hand ahead of him and one hand behind him. 
I know of no way of judging the future but by the past. He walked over to his red cloak, draped over the pew rail. Liz and Nigel pressed their backs against the pew box. They held their breaths, hoping Patrick wouldn't see them. He reached into his pocket to pull out a copy of the latest petition to the king. Liz and Nigel both exhaled and looked at one another. That was close, Nigel whispered. We, Liz quickly whispered back. I wonder if he realizes he has the letter opener. And judging by the past, Patrick continued, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last ten years to justify those hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and the house. He smiled coyly and waved the petition in the air. Is it that insidious smile with which our petition has been lately received? Trust it not, sir. It will prove a snare to your feet. Suffer not yourselves to be betrayed with a kiss. He allowed the image of Judas betraying Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to hover before the mind's eye of his listeners while he walked back across the front of the church to the open window. Ask yourselves how this gracious reception of our petition comports with those warlike preparations which cover our waters and darken our land, Patrick continued, pacing around the front of the church. He proceeded to fix his eyes on the men in the audience who wanted to keep pleading with the king, darting his gaze from one to the next. They knew he spoke not only of the closing of Boston Harbor, but of the British warship stationed in the waters near the Virginia capital of Williamsburg. Are fleets and armies necessary to a work of love and reconciliation? Have we shown ourselves so unwilling to be reconciled that force must be called in to win back our love? He leaned over with his spectacles perched firmly atop his head as he bored into their eyes with a look that arrested their best arguments. Let us not deceive ourselves, sir. These are the implements of war and subjugation, the last arguments to which kings resort. Patrick held his arms out wide and slowly turned as if the church itself was surrounded by cannon and British warships. I ask, gentlemen, sir, what means this martial array, if its purpose be not to force us to submission? Can gentlemen assign any other possible motive for it? He slowly shook his head, willing his audience to agree with him. He gradually elevated the volume of his voice. Has Great Britain any enemy in this quarter of the world to call for all this accumulation of navies and armies? No, sir, she has none. He pointed to himself and then to the audience. They are meant for us. They can be meant for no other. They are sent over to bind and rivet upon us those chains which the British ministry have been so long forging. Hear, hear! Edward Carrington cheered from the window. And what have we to oppose to them? Shall we try argument? Sir, we have been trying that for the last ten years. 
Have we anything new to offer upon the subject? Nothing. We have held the subject up in every light of which it is capable, but it has been all in vain. He unrolled the petition against the hazy light coming in from the open window. It was then he saw his ivory letter opener wrapped in the parchment. He slipped it into his right hand while he rolled the petition back up and gripped it tightly with his left hand. He's got the letter opener, Nigel cheered. Now to see what he will do with it, Liz answered. Patrick continued to increase the volume of his voice while he pointed with the petition, grilling the opposing men one by one. Shall we resort to entreaty and humble supplication? What terms shall we find which have not been already exhausted? Let us not, I beseech you, sir, deceive ourselves. Sir, we have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned, we have remonstrated, we have supplicated. He bowed low and spread out his arms. We have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. He then stood up tall pursed his lips and shook his head. He allowed his voice to grow louder as he recounted each result from their efforts. Our petitions have been slighted. Our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded, and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. He threw the petition to the floor and stomped on it with his foot. A chorus of hear, hear echoed around the room as men thumped on the church pew railings and used their canes to pound the wooden floor. Murmurings were heard all over the church until President Randolph struck the floor with his stick to silence the onlookers. Order! Order! Patrick bowed slightly in respect and appreciation to Mr. Randolph. He then stood in the middle of the church and turned his voice to one of hopeless resolve. In vain, after these things, may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. It was as if Patrick had just pronounced the sentence of death over a dying patient. He then began to slowly raise the volume of his voice with each successive sentence until he reached a deafening crescendo. If we wish to be free... If we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged, and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be obtained, we must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. Treason! Treason against the king! shouted the group of men opposing Henry. Aye, we must fight! shot back those supporting him. This is utter madness! Even if we followed such treasonous measures, we have no arms that can oppose the might of the British army and no ships to oppose her navy! argued the opposition. Once again the attendees erupted into shouts of opposing voices, 
Men pounded the church pews until President Randolph rose to his feet and struck the floor repeatedly with his stick. Order! Order! Allow that gentleman from Hanover County to continue! Order! The murmuring subsided, and Patrick once more gave a nod of respectful gratitude to Mr. Randolph. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? He shrugged his shoulders and used his hands to punctuate each question. Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? He leaned back and then wrapped his arms around his chest. Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have bound us hand and foot? He stood up straight and balled his hand into a fist. Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. Three millions of people, armed in the holy cause of liberty, and in such a country as that which we possess, are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. He looked up toward heaven and held out his hands. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. We, oui, the French will come, Mon Henry, Liz cheered quietly. Nigel preened his whiskers proudly. Franklin's electric key has already turned the lock in that door. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave, Patrick continued, holding out his arms. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest, Patrick continued, allowing the volume of his voice to reach its maximum. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir. Let it come. Yet again the chorus of protests erupted from the floor of the convention over the mention of war. Above the din of voices, Patrick suddenly heard the unmistakable voice of an eagle. Little did he know, it was his eagle. In a split second, he saw Cato fly by the open window, crying out, Liberty! 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 Patrick gripped the letter opener in his hand, and a flood of childhood memories filled his mind. Whitfield, Davies, Cato, his eagle, Plutarch, and the play. Liz's heart raced as she saw Patrick look at the letter opener in his right hand. This is it, Mon Henry. Patrick bellowed in a loud voice and immediately regained command of the audience. His eyes were flashing and his face flush with passion as he held his arms out wide. It is in vain, sir, 
to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. He directed his gaze and nodded at Colonel Andrew Lewis, who had already experienced first blood drawn at the Battle of Point Pleasant. The war is actually begun. He then pointed north, with his hand extended in dramatic form. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. He clenched his fists, and his voice grew to such a pitch that men began rising to their feet. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? He then crossed his wrists as if they were manacled by heavy chains, with his gaze lowered to the floor. He closed his eyes, and the fresh image of his beloved Sally, bound up in the chains of her straight dress, flashed across his mind. A lump formed in his throat, followed by a wave of anger at the thought of America, also now bound by the tyranny of the British lion. Patrick clenched his jaw and tightened his right fist around the letter opener. He opened his eyes that now blazed with fury and the piercing question posed to every man in the room. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God, Patrick cried, throwing back his head as he gazed up to heaven the tendons in his neck protruding as he strained against the imaginary fetters weighing him down. He then lowered his fiery gaze to the timid men opposing him, making them squirm with the notion that they were allowing him to remain in such a state. He then hunched his shoulders forward and allowed his gaze to drift to the floor. He willed the assembly to envision him as the embodiment of the humiliated, oppressed colony of Virginia under the iron heel of the British monarch. I know not what course others may take, he groaned through clenched teeth, slowly raising his gaze. But as for me, give me liberty, he cried, belting out each syllable with a roar and straining with every muscle to cast off the imaginary chains from his arms, he stood there fearless and defiant, the pure embodiment of freedom, allowing the word liberty to reverberate off the walls as he gripped the letter opener in his fist. The unconquerable spirit of Cato possessed him and flashed before the eyes of every man in the room, causing the hair on the backs of their necks to rise. He then pretended to plunge the letter opener into his patriot heart and in an electrifying, triumphant cry exclaimed, Or give me death! Deafening silence filled the room. No one uttered a word. In that moment, the entire assembly was instantly transported to the bluffs of Utica. They were listening to the cries of Cato, the last citizen of the Roman Republic beseeching them to never give up their liberty no matter the cost. The gravity of a decision fell onto each soul as the piercing question was pressed to each breast like a dagger. What then will you choose, liberty or death? 
Liz closed her eyes tightly, allowing the tears to stream down her cheeks from the enraptured moment. The destiny-filled influences, hardships, and resolve that had poured into her Henry throughout his entire life came together in that one eternal moment. Boys, bury me here on this spot, came the cry of Edward Carrington, who pointed at the ground below where he stood at the window. He was energized by the urgency of the ancient Roman tragedy revived against the backdrop of history's current stage of events. Max jumped as Carrington enthusiastically hit the wooden crate that he had been sitting on to also peer in the window next to the excited patriot. Steady, lad, he barked. To arms! To arms! came the cry from trembling lips as the emotion of Patrick's sentinel call rippled throughout the assembly. Patrick slowly walked back to take his seat on the third row near the window where Carrington and Max were stationed. Richard Henry Lee raised his hand to be recognized. I wish to second Mr. Henry's resolutions that the colony of Virginia be immediately placed in a state of defense. Thomas Jefferson quickly lifted his hand in agreement. I echo the motion by the gentleman from Westmoreland County. Wealthy young Thomas Nelson Jr. was on his feet. His family home in Yorktown was situated overlooking the York River, where British warships could anchor. He slammed his fist on the pew box and declared, If any British troops land within my county of York, I will wait for no orders and will obey none which would forbid me to summon my militia and repel the invaders at the water's edge. He turned and looked at his fellow wealthy aristocrats. To shrink away from this challenge now would mean dishonor. Opposing shouts continued until Peyton Randolph pounded his stick on the floor at the front altar of the church to call the men to order one more time on this immortal day. It is time to take a vote on Mr. Henry's resolutions. He looked around the room and maintained a grave expression as he furrowed his brow. Think carefully about what you will be putting your name to. If you vote aye, you will be potentially accused of declaring war against the King of England. The men of the assembly cast anxious glances at one another. Those who were certain of their decision to support Henry's resolutions nodded with vigorous resolve. They were eager to vote. Those opposed were just as eager to voice their opinion, but their motivation was to block Henry's resolves. Those who were uncertain wavered as they looked around the room to see who was on what side of the decision. Peyton Randolph perched both hands atop his stick. Very well. All those in favor, say aye. Aye, came a resounding chorus of voices ready to take up arms. President Randolph paused a moment as Clerk Tazewell counted the upraised arms. Then he followed with, All those opposed? Nay, shouted the fearful voices siding with the king. This is going to be close, Max muttered to himself, catching Clarie's eye across the room. Do you suppose the eyes have it, my dear? Nigel asked Liz. She looked up and saw Clarie standing in the open door, urgently motioning them to exit. Je ne sais pas, but we cannot stay to find out. No time to explain, 
Clarice said as Max, Liz, and Nigel joined her outside. She squatted down behind a tombstone. You need to get to Cato at the falls. I'll meet you there shortly and fill you in on what happens with the vote. Now hurry, get to Cato! She quickly rose to her feet and rushed back inside the church. Max, Liz, and Nigel looked at one another, stunned and confused. What's happened, you think? Max asked as they started walking in the direction of the falls. No, no, no! Liz shouted as it slowly dawned on her what was happening. Her heart suddenly caught in her throat. Kato! She cried as she took off running ahead of the others. I say... It seems this chapter leaves us with more questions than answers, especially in regard to our fine-feathered friend, Cato. Oui, Nigel, uh, but we dare not say any more, as this leads us to our final chapter of The Voice, The Revolution, and the Key in next week's episode. Aye, tis the final episode of Season 2 of the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. And I can't wait, uh, but of course, we must. In the meantime, though, uh, Miss Jenny would like to share something rather personal and very special. Events that she experienced in writing this incredible tale. And so it is time to head to Jenny's corner. Hello, Miss Jenny. Hey, everybody. Uh, bonjour, madame. Well, we are closing in on the final episode, no? And we got to hear Mon Henry's incredible plea for liberty. Oh, magnifique. You must have known a great deal about Patrick Henry before you could ever write such a story, no? Indeed, Miss Jenny. Just how much background information did you have on Mr. Henry at the start? Seven little words. That's all most people remember about Patrick Henry. And when I started researching Patrick Henry, that's all I knew. When I started learning about who he was, what he did... I became ashamed that all I remembered about Patrick Henry was seven little words. Aye, that'd be hard to believe, though, lass. Because here we are, Patrick's big speech with them seven little words. But the way you told it, lass, it were way more than that. Indeed. And uh, that brings us to a point that your readers can take advantage of in your books, but uh, perhaps escapes us here in audio form. And of course, I'm referring to the back of each of your books, where you include what you call a word from the author. I say, Miss Jenny, exactly what does that include? It's where I kind of give you some behind-the-scenes information. If there's a couple of different ideas or perspectives, possibly, of what could have happened and something we didn't know, I kind of tell you that. I say, this was real, this was fiction, this is one we're not very sure about. And because this chapter was so important and something really cool happened, I just want to read you this segment of the word from the author from The Voice of the Revolution in the Key. Liberty or death speech. It has been called the second most famous speech in American history, second only to Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It was delivered on March 23, 1775 in the Enrico Parish Church now known as St. John's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia. But we have no idea if Patrick Henry actually spoke every word I've dramatized. But uh, why do we not know that, Miss Jenny? Because Patrick Henry never wrote his speeches down. He always spoke, quote, extemporaneously from his mother wit, unquote, as I often hear my friend and Patrick Henry interpreter Richard Schumann say. 
The text I presented is the historical record published in Patrick Henry's first biography in 1817 by William Wirt. However, Wirt pieced together the speech from eyewitness accounts of men who were there 30 years after the event. We do know that the battle cry of liberty or death spread like wildfire and was soon stitched on militia hunting shirts and flags, and we know that Henry used those words to press the Cato button of his audience. Huh. How so, Miss Jenny? Edison's play Cato was wildly popular, and Henry knew how to emote the same passionate response of his audience, both with words and with his dramatic gesture plunging the ivory letter opener into his heart, portraying the ancient Roman who chose death rather than life under the tyranny of Julius Caesar. Aye, that were high drama, lass. Now tell us about the special treat you got in writing this chapter. I had the distinct and surreal experience of pinning the Liberty or Death chapter while sitting in Patrick Henry's seat in St. John's Church on the 241st anniversary of the speech, March 23, 2016. Oh, that is amazing, madame. But that was not all the maker allowed you to experience, we, oui, madame? More divinely inspired things happened in the process. The fantasy side of this entire novel involves a bald eagle named Cato, who serves to inspire Patrick's liberty or death speech. I didn't plan on this new character. He just showed up on my pages as I started writing the book. I quickly grew to love him. Well, when I got the carpe diem nudge from God the week before to get to Richmond and write, I suspected that in addition to the incredible honor of sitting there all day long and writing, something magical would happen. It did. When I arrived in Virginia the day before, a bald eagle circled over my car as I boarded the Surrey Ferry to cross the James River. That night, I dreamed a bald eagle built a nest over my doorway, but I couldn't place where it was. When I later got to the church, it was the doorway of St. John's Church that I had seen in my dream. As I got on the interstate to drive from Williamsburg to Richmond, a bald eagle circled over my car. As I walked around the front of the church, I noticed an old, ornate chair carved with a bald eagle. They didn't know where it came from, but use it as Peyton Randolph's chair in their reenactments. Finally, While I was sitting in Patrick Henry's seat after writing the last words of the book, my friend Raymond Baird told me a bald eagle had just that moment circled over the church, only seen twice in eight years. I've been researching Patrick Henry for eight years. For icing on the cake that day, Raymond allowed me to ring the bell of the church as they started the reenactment of the Second Virginia Convention. Guess how many times you're supposed to ring the bell? Seven. So, was Cato the eagle real? I know not what course you may take, but as for me, he was, both in 1775 and in 2016, as he flew over me all the way to the church. Was there a mad dash to retrieve Patrick Henry's ivory letter opener to slip into his red cloak? Well, I'll let you decide that one. Another cliffhanger, then. How you're tearing us up here, Miss Ginny? Indeed, old boy. I, I say, I can't take much more suspense. Well, too bad, because we're not done yet. Oh, dear. I do not like the sound of that. Huh. You mean I know Sir Lad's voice? <laughs> I know. That can be kind of annoying. No, Max. Even worse. This time it is what he said. 
There are even more surprises? Uh, well, if you remember, there was mention of a special guest arriving. Hi, and I just noticed it'd be getting windy in here. We oui, and we are still indoors. Hi, and the announcer lad aren't even talking. Where's this wind coming from? Hello, little ones. I say, Gilliman, old boy, hey, you are a sight for sore eyes. Oui, mon ami. Ah, it is so good to see you. Hi, a special treat for sure, lad. Uh, well, uh, speaking of special treats, uh, did you all receive your packages? No, no I haven't seen any. What was it? Announcer fellow? Uh, it's, it's Denny. So it is. Uh, you haven't seen any deliveries, have you? No. Oh... Drat those supply chain issues. Uh, let me see if I can find my courier. Here comes the wind again. Special delivery for uh, Max, Liz, and Nigel? Ah, uh, that's Nigel and... Uh... Oh, wait a minute, I say. Is that you, Clary? <laughs> Guilty as charged. I just love playing courier. And I just love getting packages. What you got? What you got? What you Max, got? Max, down boy. <sighs> but I must say, my kitty curiosity is through the roof. Clary, what have you got, eh? Well, as you all know, this little assignment will soon be taking a little hiatus. Little assignment? Two seasons? Over 120 episodes? Tens of thousands of downloads? <laughs> okay, this big assignment is about to go on a break. Indeed, uh, but I do have new assignments for each of you, and the packages Clary has brought with her will each give a hint as to each of your new assignments. Each of them? Are you saying we shall be working independently from each other? Oh dear, I've said too much already. Uh, when you open your packages, it will become clear what you are to do next. Uh, but I still have another surprise to include before any of this will make sense to you. And when is that surprise coming? In our next episode. Oh, but mon ami, this suspense is killing me. <laughs> Nonsense, Liz. Uh, you're immortal, remember? <laughs> uh, Clary, you'd better keep a close eye on those packages until next time. I say, once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.